You are listening to the National University Podcast. Hello, I'm Kimberly King. Welcome to the National University Podcast, where we offer a holistic approach to student support, well-being, and success, the whole human education. We put passion into practice by offering accessible, achievable, higher education to lifelong learners. Today, we're talking about if whether or not there's racism in healthcare and what that may look like. It might be easy to take for granted, but we talk to the experts to get their opinion. On today's episode, we're discussing racism in healthcare, and we are fortunate enough to have two guests with us. Dr. Gloria McNeil is an Associate Vice President for Community Affairs in Health at National University, and over the course of her academic career, she has served as a Program Director and an Assistant Associate Founding Dean for Public, Private, and Ivy League Institutions of Higher Education. She's continuously funded for the past 23 years and currently serves as the PI for the HRSA Simultation Education Training Grant and the HRSA Mobile Health Training Program. Together with a team of clinicians, she has launched the National University Nurse Managed Clinic in 2015, which provides primary care services for low-income residents in Los Angeles and San Diego counties. She has authored over 170 articles, abstracts, books, book chapters, and editorials, and has served as editor or associate editor for peer-reviewed nursing journals. And that is just a few of her accomplishments. Plus, we are fortunate enough to also have Dr. Ricardo Parker over for over 11 years at National University. Dr. Parker serves as a professor and academic program director for the Bachelor of Science in Allied Health program in the Department of Health Services, School of Health Professions. He also serves on the department and school level committees and actively supports health science students' professional development. He was co-investigating of two National University Innovation Grants for a pilot project titled Interactive Health Career Pathway Tools, Journeys, an interactive degree and career planning tool designed to assist students navigating the complexity of health professions and to improve retention and graduation rates. Dr. Parker served as a faculty mentor for two HRSA grants funded projects, National University's Nurse Managed Clinic Initiative Program and their simulated virtual healthcare system model project. He is also a member of the Plain Tree Higher Education Certification Pilot Group Council. And if we listed any more of his accomplishments, that would take up the entire podcast. <laughs> Impressive. My goodness. Did I get through everything okay? Mm-hmm. Sure. We, we welcome both of you to this podcast. How are you? Thank you. Doing well, thanks. Good. Doing well, thanks. Yeah, so interesting. And what a mouthful, but what an accomplishment on both of your behalves. Thank you so much for being here. I'm going to start with you, Dr. McNeil. Why don't you fill our audience a little bit in on your mission and your work before we get to today's show topic? Okay, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So I think I became interested in the discipline of nursing because my mother um, served as a nurse, uh, and she instilled in me the importance of giving back um, to our community. Um, So um, we grew up in uh, underserved communities ourselves, um, but were able to achieve quite a bit because I think my mother was just so visionary. Um, And so when I had the opportunity to actually give back to those communities, I did so. So I was born and raised in public housing and understand very well 
uh, what the needs of that community can be. Uh, and um, in, in my ability to uh, become better educated, um, it allowed me then to um, serve in that role. So firsthand knowledge was your key, and then of course your mentor as your mother. That's yeah. great. And then what about you, Dr. Parker? Well, I have uh, some, some similar uh, beginnings. Um, uh, I recall as a young kid uh, being raised uh, in a in project in Washington, D.C. called Kenworth. And what was kind of exciting about uh, that was there was a pond nearby. It was called the Lily Pond. And as a young kid, I used to go down and uh, collect pond water. And uh, one day I caught some tadpoles and it was watching tadpoles turn into frogs mm. that just it was like a, a, a spark that ignited a huge flame in my uh, interest in biology if you will and then later on I recall my uh, elementary school teachers one in particular um, had a microscope and I happened to get some pond water and look under the microscope at pond water and there's a whole new world that opened up to me um, and was then that uh, later on the excitement grew, but then I had a, a personal issue with the family with my grandfather uh, was diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. and uh, eventually had surgery. He was um, uh, became invalid and eventually died. Um, but it was that interest in cancer. And again, going back to school, my uh, high school instructor, gave me a science project called DNA to biology of the molecule of life. All of that culminated into a keen interest in looking at cancer and then developing an undergrad, grad uh, school. I was fortunate to participate in certain programs that gave me my bachelor's degree, master's degree, then went off to Oregon State University where I got my uh, PhD. By the way, my uh, undergrad and master's were at Historic Black Institution, Shaw University, and Tennessee State University. Postdoc was uh, at the National Cancer Institute, which was another incredible eye-opening experience mm-hmm. where I d- uh, worked in um, first the laboratory of tumor immunology and biology, and then um, in uh, clinical oncology uh, section, looking at uh, drug resistance as a mechanism of, uh, of why patients um, fail uh, treatment, and that was another, actually opened up the whole new world of uh, cancer research to me, and I've been in that field for over 35 years. Wow. Impressive and inspirational, both of you, your stories and your journey to where you are today. So thank you for inspiring all of us. I am looking forward to hearing more. I wanted to find out, we're talking really about institutional racism in healthcare. And so, uh, Dr. McNeil, I'm gonna start with you. What are some of the causes and examples of institutional racism in healthcare today? Yeah, I think um, COVID-19 really um, opened up everyone's eyes to the disparities and inequities of healthcare that are out there. The United States is a very, well-developed uh, uh, nation in terms of medical science. However, our healthcare outcomes are the worst of any industrialized nation. Wow. The one that really um, strikes me is the uh, maternal infant death rate in the United States. 
Um, and we have um, arguably the highest standards of medical practice. So why is that occurring? Uh, and when we look at the history of our nation, it has been one that, um, well, it's, it's available for everyone to achieve and become accomplished. I mean, I'm an example of that. However, however, that's not open to everyone. Um, and so for the few of us who are able to achieve, we're not enough in numbers uh, to really make a difference and improve, for example, maternal infant death rates. That is fascinating. And I saw that you nodded your head. Let me hear what do you have to yes. say. About and, and there are, there are other aspects. If you actually look at the historic and contemporary uh, issues associated with racism uh, in healthcare, uh, uh, there's a foundational uh, factor associated with that. Let me just speak to uh, the historical aspect when you talk about segregation uh, here in the United States where uh, people have been divided, if you will, based on color. And it's this whole concept of what a person looks like. Um, when you also consider the government, and for that matter, um, laws uh, being incorporated, uh, particularly during segregation, where this concept of separate but equal uh, comes into play, um, there that has uh, caused and instituted um, a lot of uh, in inequities. And I think if you continue to kind of look more granularly at this, uh, what, what you actually see is that there is indeed some discriminatory practices, beliefs, and I'll call values that uh, have uh, been associated with the challenges that we see in the healthcare system, for that matter, in the community. Um, historically, again, uh, if you consider um, um, how I'll say medicine or health care system evolved. Initially, it started off as a, um, uh, you had charities, I mean, well, sanitariums and places where people that did not have uh, the, we the wealth or wherewithal, uh, where they would go to probably be isolated and uh, not get, um, not become, uh, let's say, a burden, but really to contain disease and uh, uh, if you didn't follow that through, these charitable organizations and, and turned into uh, these volunteer or, or volunteer organizations. Um, move that further along, now you are start developing a public health system where people that were either indigent or just didn't have all the, uh, I'll say, the wealth and ability to take care of themselves, they had those facilities available. And the, when the business of medicine start to come into play. Uh, you, uh, you had this whole idea of now trying to more or better organize how to uh, administer healthcare for the community and for uh, people at large. One of the biggest challenges with that is um, uh, you had organizations that actually come in to actually buy up hospitals, buy up clinics, and then start um, institutionalizing how medicine and healthcare is being doled out. In the, I'll say, I guess the late 60s, somewhere in the 60s, when the Hill-Burton Act came into play, and it's a very important act, um, that the government uh, uh, provided tens of millions of dollars for hospitals to uh, upgrade and to become more modernized. One of the 
in what was going on there when you had already had this segregation or separation of public hospitals, volunteer, uh, you know, public and charitable hospitals versus those that were considered nonprofit and private. Um, the dollars that were being doled out to those different areas uh, were going more towards uh, the uh, the more wealthier uh, facilities, particularly those facilities that had patients that had private health insurance mm-hmm. and were able to afford the type of health care that these uh, more, I'll call them elite uh, hospitals uh, provided. When you look on the other side, the public community health uh, had got less. And if you also throw in this whole idea of segregation again, where uh, blacks were uh, delegated or relegated to uh, more inferior facilities, um, that also exacerbated the challenge of this health inequity between uh, folk in the community. So it's, a, it's an interesting history. Hmm. Uh, and um, considering the factors that play into that, we'll maybe talk about that later on, the structural factors um, that actually cause this, um, they are still in play. After all these years. And, and I'll just piggyback on to that. Um, you know, I grew up in the zip code, and I've often indicated this in my publications, 19122. It's a zip code in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's one of the worst in terms of health outcomes mm-hmm. in the nation. Um, and so when I was in the eighth grade, now, mind you, I'd gone through eight years of education Um, I had the opportunity, because my GPA was so high, to be admitted to the Philadelphia High School for Girls, which was at that time a public elitist high school, and there were only one such high schools in the country like that, or 100 such high schools like that in the country. That's where I learned that I could not read and I could not write. Mm. And so the deficit was profound, right? Um, And I came to understand that when you are in these underserved communities, so many, so much of the resources are not available to you. What can you do when you graduate from high school and you can't read or write, right? You have no opportunity for collegiate education or anything else beyond that. Well, fortunately for me, my mother understood the problem and she went out and worked three jobs Mm -hmm. to provide me private tutors so that I could be brought up to the level of my classmates. Um, But that opportunity is not for everyone. And so a large segment of that group is left out of the educational foray. Wow. This history needs to be heard and and needs to be told. So thank you for sharing, and, and this is what this is all about, so that we make changes for the future. What are some, and either one of you can answer this, what are some of the effects and that impact of this history of racism in healthcare? Mm-hmm. I'll start. Mm-hmm. Um, lower life expectancy. So the average um, longevity of an uh, American white male is like 72, 74, and for a female, 82, something like that. Um, When you look at the life expectancy of a black male in lower-income communities, it's 45 years of age, right? And so that disparity 
really uh, is significant. Um, higher rates of diabetes and uh, high blood pressure and mental illness. Um, higher uh, maternal infant mortality rates, as I indicated uh, earlier. Um, and um, the eligibility of health insurance, right? So if you are an African-American male and you are 21 years of age, you're no longer considered a pediatric case, there is no health insurance for you. Uh, and you will have no health insurance until you're 65. And maybe you'll qualify for Medicare. Now, a woman who is childbearing age will be covered with some program or other until maybe 50 years of age. But then she's left uncovered between 50 and 65. And so all you're, if you are not insured, you cannot access health care. It's just not there. Um, one, uh, you know, I do a lot with mobile health clinics, and I put nurse practitioners aboard those clinics. Uh, when I initially started out, I made it clear to the people that we served was that this was really for individuals who did not have health insurance at all. And I had a patient come aboard the vehicle. She had four children. And um, she said to me, I have health insurance. I, um, however, my physician has indicated to me that he does not accept Medicaid mm -hmm. insurance. And so he will not see me or my children. So that caused me to understand and recognize that just because you have health insurance, that does not guarantee access. Probing that next question, right. And it is, and again, treating everybody, everybody has a different story, but really asking the full question, line of questioning. You were gonna say something. Yeah, there, um, uh, just to piggyback on what Dr. McNeil uh, spoke to, uh, if you also look at, say, the effects of racism, if you will, um, you also have to look at, um, in uh, certain communities, uh, uh, certain uh, distrust and uh, lack of involvement or engagement in the healthcare system could be because of either being uninsured or underinsured. Um, and in those situations, uh, when a health crisis occurs, um, they may not have the right insurance to cover what's needed mm -hmm. and therefore have to go into the emergency room as a means to gain access to health care. Um, looking at that distrust concept, uh, I am mindful of at least there's several, I mean, historically there are several uh, studies or several events that have occurred historically. Uh, two that come to mind, of course, people are very familiar, most people are familiar with the Tuskegee uh, studies. And um, just a very quickly, 399 um, African-American sharecroppers uh, out of uh, Tuskegee, Alabama, were um, actually being studied or a research was being done on them without their consent, by the way, not even knowing about it, um, and uh, looking at uh, syphilis and looking at the, um, the pathohistology or this, yeah, the pathohistology of uh, syphilis, looking at it from from when they get it all the way to when they die. And this is from the government, the public health uh, mm -hmm. system that actually, well, public, yeah, public health system that actually did this. And it went on for nearly 40 years. And it wasn't known, I mean, it wasn't found out until a reporter 
uh, that happened to be on one of the one of the annual meetings that these guys came to to, to compare notes. Uh, uh, I, he was a he became what you call a whistleblower mm-hmm. and uh, made the statement and you know brought it to the fore. And and that, it started in 1932 and in 1972 I believe it was um, when it was discovered. Um, this actually brought about uh, the uh, Belmont report that provided certain safety nets, and the Belmont report in, uh, instituted uh, anyone that is um, uh, undergoing any type of research. First, they have to be it has to be um, the person has to get their consent. Now there are other now there's Nuremberg, and then there's uh, Helsinki that also brought that in. Uh, but with the Belmont report, it says that a person, not only do they have to uh, be uh, told what this research is about, but the person has to get consent right. to, uh, to, be a, to, to participate or not. Now, the other study that comes to mind that a lot of folk aren't familiar with is um, uh, done by a gentleman by the name of uh, J. Marion Sims, who they called the father of gyne- uh, gynecology. Uh, at least gynecological surgery. Uh, and what he did um, was uh, perform surgery on uh, enslaved women um, and was, at first, they did not give their consent. And what was so horrendous about it is that he performed surgery without anesthesia. Oh, my goodness. And, um, mm. you know, though you look at this double-edged sword, same thing with the Nuremberg trials, and uh, that the science that came out of that, mm-hmm. um, while it advanced science per se, but it was the uh, under the guise of uh, very horrendous racial or racist um, mindset. And again, to this day, these effects, or what we know, can affect, uh, at least for African Americans, uh, fear or distrust of the uh, health of doctors, mm-hmm. and for that matter, the healthcare system. So therein lies an, an, uh, another underlying issue where we might also tie in some of the disparities and some of the uh, inequities that we see because we don't trust the system mm-hmm. because it's failed us. And it's so important to know that history. And so thank you for bringing that forward again. And, and the key word is the education and really talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the ethnic composition of the current healthcare workforce? Um, I can speak for the discipline of nursing, uh, and it continues to be not very diverse at all. Now, it is attempting to rectify that. Uh, most recently, I'm going to say within the past year, uh, they brought together groups of individuals to study the problem uh, and to encourage. Um, more grant funding opportunities Mm -hmm. for individuals of lower income and socioeconomic status. But it will be years before we're able to really realize that. Um, There are about 26 historically black colleges that have schools of nursing, uh, and that's where a predominant number of African-American students go to be educated as nurses. Um, I was fortunate to attend Villanova University and the University of Pennsylvania. Um, And at least in the years that I was at Villanova, I was the only African-American female 
mm-hmm. on campus of 5,000 students. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, it's difficult um, to raise this uh, bar uh, and to encourage minority students to go into the discipline of nursing. Many minority students feel that they'd rather go into medicine or engineering or other more high-profile um, disciplines, um, you know, to overcome some of the stigma, you know, attached to them. So it's a double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, uh, I you know uh, when you can actually consider the stats, uh, you can't give solid numbers, but we do know. I mean, along with what Dr. McNeil said, that there's predominantly white. Um, roughly, if you actually look at the breakdown, 85 to 90 percent. And uh, you look at uh, African Americans and Pacific Islanders and Asian, mm-hmm. we probably make up somewhere between 12 and 13 percent. And overall, and then other, if you will, that category others falls under that two, three percent. So yeah, it's um, across the spectrum. It's still that huge separate, you know, disparities between, um, I'll say, non-whites and uh, uh, minority, if you will, in mm-hmm. that in those various health fields. Health fields. And and to what you were saying, uh, Dr. McNeil, that it's still going to take years from even making these adjustments and making these changes. Um, what are some policy decisions to address health inequities? Mm-hmm. I think um, we need to lift the cap that we have on uh, grant funding mm. um, for schools of nursing, schools of medicine, schools of physical therapy, and on and on and on. Um, allow these schools to have opportunities to provide scholarships, stipends, mm-hmm. or things like that uh, to encourage more minority students to apply. Um, I think also um, boosting the support for schools of nursing and faculty. The Department of Labor just put out a call for a proposal that we did um, submit uh, a grant opportunity to increase the number of nurse faculty um, who in our schools of nursing. So we have 1,500 schools of nursing, but we turn away every year 80,000-plus qualified student nurses because we don't have the faculty to teach the courses, we don't have the clinical placements to put the students in, et cetera. Uh, And in addition, most faculty, nursing faculty, are 60-plus years of age. They're about to retire, Mm -hmm. and there is no one in the pipeline uh, to bring up the rear. So we need to, and, and the faculty salaries need to be addressed. Um, because nurse faculty make far less than others on the um, academic campus. Um, And you could do so much better in the service sector. So individuals are just not interested. Um, It's really dedicated folks who take on the faculty role. Those numbers are disparaging, aren't they? Wow. Dr. Parker, did you want to say anything about that? Well, Dr. Dr. McNeil, uh, uh, at least for nursing and in general, so healthcare uh, in general, um, I, I mean, of course, I agree wholeheartedly about that. Um, there are also uh, issues with regards to uh, looking at the pipeline of uh, doctors, nurses uh, here in the United States. Um, we're finding that more and more doctors that have looked at how managed care 
has kind of caused a rift with what they can make versus um, how they can provide the best quality care for their patients. Uh, that pipeline is kind of trickling in because many of the doctors are moving into, uh, I call it boutique medicine, mm -hmm. and um, working these private groups, uh, whereas um, the hospitals or clinics that uh, that work that help people with, let's say, either underinsured, uninsured, or not the right insurance, um, having challenges. So, and we are looking to bring in, and we have. Uh, uh, to address that, bring in more foreign uh, doctors, nurses, and uh, healthcare professionals. Um, there should be have to be some means by which uh, more equitable, um, I'll say, access and equitable uh, pathways, if you will, uh, for um, I'll say more representative populations to have folk that look like them in their communities, mm -hmm. and also that uh, have provide the resources available. Again, we'll go back to how the uh, policies, governance, mm -hmm. and uh, is in place and what um, we put value on with regards to healthcare. Uh, it is, it goes back to this, the, uh, the built structures, the uh, structural uh, factors associated with how this healthcare system works how it operates, um, there are challenges. Um, if the government and those that are, are, are making decisions locally, nationally, for that matter, even internationally, are making decisions on um, where the dollars are going, uh, who gets the health care, what the insurance policies are, practices are, um, there are big challenges, big challenges with that. Uh, looking at, again, policies, I tend to be more selective on what they call the majority benefit versus the minority. Uh, all these terms where we've been able to separate people based on these uh, classifications, definitions, minority, uh, ethnic minorities, and called non-white majority. Um, the practices and uh, policies and more or less what we value, what has been placed on the value of healthcare, put it that way. And if you can uh, put a value on it, it has a measurement. And uh, if uh, people that have uh, less access to healthcare uh, don't get involved into the practice of healthcare versus those that gain access, have access, have the great uh, insurance policies. Uh, that separation still causes these uh, policymakers, uh, lawmakers, to look at what's important for "quote unquote" the majority mm -hmm. and residual for the minority, if if at all. Um, it causes a chasm between a have and a have nots, and has uh, done so historically. Uh, we still have a ways to go, uh, but what we put value on. I think is an important aspect for um, the healthcare, uh, uh, those that provide healthcare, the systems that actually make up the healthcare system. I'm talking about anywhere from the hospitals to the insurance companies to all the other players and community health facilities and whatnot. Take a close, close look at what is re what's needed to have mm -hmm. some type of equitable access mm -hmm. practice. 
and 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 uh, the business of medicine mm-hmm. again has to somehow take really look at this mm-hmm. and take I want to call it a back seat, but allow doctors to be doctors mm-hmm. and allow them to really interact more intimately with their patients, so we can increase the trust mm-hmm. and uh, and as importantly. Um, have doctors, nurses, and all the support staff develop these very essential teams where they can communicate, where they can collaborate, and truly, truly, truly work on providing uh, not only the best health care, provide at least people can have better access mm-hmm. to quality care, and also have um, better outcomes. Mm-hmm. The business of medicine has to provide the resources mm-hmm. and the space for doctors to be doctors and all the healthcare support staff to do what we've been trained to do and not get caught up into uh, being more, not, not more concerned, but being concerned about the, the dollar. Right. The dollar has taken center stage mm-hmm. in uh, what medicine has been about. And in order for us to save ourselves, because we're all in the same boat, whether you like it or not, Mm -hmm. we're all in the same boat. Mm -hmm. To save ourselves, we've got to take a a look at this and really start changing course. Because if we don't and continue down the course we're headed, um, we're in for a lot of hurt. Yeah, the disaster is there, that's clear. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to get back to the use of the emergency room as a primary care um, service. So when you go into underserved um, environments, you will find no clinics, no physician offices, none of that, right? And so when they become ill, um, they have to travel sometimes two, three buses or at least great distance to um, be seen in a tertiary care facility. When you walk into an emergency room because you have the flu or symptoms of the flu and you wanna be cared for, in about two hours, that bill is $5,000. Mm. You can see a physician or a nurse practitioner for maybe 100 right? something much more reasonable. Mm. And because the hospital has to pick up that bill, because you cannot, I've watched 11 hospitals over the course of 10 years close. They simply had to close. And now there are no resources for anyone, right? Um, And the other thing regarding um, where our professionals are, these regulatory um, conditions that prevent the nurse practitioner, for example, from hanging a shingle and and delivering services in many states is incredibly prohibitive, incredibly. So we have to look at those regulations. We have to look at how we can put more primary care services in the communities where they are um, so that we can prevent this use, overuse of the ER for primary care conditions. It's it's insane the amount of money uh, that is being spent and especially when you do the history and the backup uh, as to why they're walking into emergency care rather than the clinics. We have to take a quick break, uh, but thank you so much. This information is uh, so it's inspiring, but it's also we need to make changes. So thank you for uh, all of your time. Don't go away. We will be right. And now a national university tip on getting started. For me personally, I knew I wanted to pursue 
in education due to what I wanted to do in, in life. But if I had to look back at somebody in my same position, I would tell them, for one, get rid of every reason why you can't go to school. Just deciding and then committing to it, the first place to start is, what do you enjoy? What do you care about? And if there's a degree that you know you can translate that into, then let's go after that. If you're unsure, talk to somebody who's currently in school. If you're serving with somebody who's going to school, talk to them about it and what their experience is like. The thing is, I truly believe as far as the general education, it's a perfect time to develop an understanding of what you wanna do. It helps you figure out what you wanna do. There's always going to be room to adjust, to make changes. And so looking at anybody who was sitting in my position and they're thinking about going to school, I would tell them to go down to that college office. They can guide you and, and help you figure out what it is or ways that you can make it happen. back to our interview with Dr. Gloria McNeil and Dr. Ricardo Parker. And today we're discussing examples of institutional racism in healthcare. And it's been a fascinating conversation. I wanted to ask you both, what historical practices continue to contribute to structural racism in the United States? Well, I think I, I can start. Mm -hmm. um, um, I mentioned previously about uh, certain uh, socioeconomic and political aspects of uh, the healthcare system and where we find ourselves. It goes back, I mean, if you have to look at socioeconomic and political aspects, again, governance, policies, and what we value. And uh, all of those structural aspects tie into uh, some of the uh, socioeconomic uh, activities and practices that individuals, families, and communities practice. Um, when we speak to uh, this whole concept of structural racism, what are, what are we actually talking about? Uh, we're talking about um, built environments. We're talking about the structural, uh, the structures that actually are put in place um, legally, um, historically over time that have impacted uh, the differences that we see in various communities. Now, divide a line between them, those communities that have and those communities that don't have. Um, the uh, concept of structural racism uh, is founded on it, and we don't talk about this uh, too, too much, but you really have to kind of look at what this whole idea of race is about, and it's just racism uh, is not real. It's a social construct that has been historically use and exploit it, um, but it's a, it's a means of separating people by who what they look like. Mm. And it is the foundation under which racism stands, sits, and has evolved historically over time and continues uh, to this day. But when you consider uh, the concept of structural racism, we have to look at um, the social determinants of health. And uh, I think Dr. McNeil and I will talk more expansively about that. But um, we have to actually consider uh, what are actually those factors, what are those differences that we see uh, with regards to um, where a person lives, um, or first where they're born, where they live, where they go to school, um, where they die, that whole environment. I mean, that whole 
environments and conditions set the stage for uh, their health, or what they do, who they are. Um, and uh, when you consider one environment, uh, I'll say a wealthy environment versus uh, underserved, uh, impoverished environment, who people are, what they do, where they live, and those conditions under which they live, the schools in which they go to, and for that matter, the jobs that they have, all of those factors play into um, uh, health. And by the way, health is outside the hospital. It occurs outside the hospital. That's a headline right there. Yep, I love it. And so when you actually look at what these conditions lead to, we, I mean, it's obvious that you see in underserved, uh, impoverished environments that they do use uh, the emergency room as primary care, go in that, in that way, uh, because being under-insured under, uh, or uninsured. You know, thank God Medicare did come along in the late 60s when LBJ instituted it. Um, what that did, if you go, I mean, looking back at it, you got to still remember, while uh, segregation was outlawed, if you will, on the books, it was still practiced extensively. I remember as a kid, having to sit in the back of the bus in Washington, D.C. Anyway, that's another story. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, with all of that uh, going, going on, you, you have these separations. You have these differences. And when you consider the dollars that go into, again, that go into uh, quality care, I'll say access to quality care, what that care is about, and the costs associated with it, again, here's that demarcation, that separation again, mm-hmm. based on communities. So we have a ways to go uh, when it comes to um, equity along those lines. Um, so, Yeah, I want to speak to the cost. So when I first came to California, I did not have health insurance. I wasn't employed yet. And I went to see um, um, internists just for a physical exam. And so she spent about 45 minutes or so doing an examination, taking my blood pressure, um, drawing some blood, um, doing some tests. And then she presented me with the bill. Mm. It was $650, right? Now, if I had given her a Medicare card or a Medicaid card, she would have been reimbursed in the state of California $25 $25 in the state of, uh, I mean, not uh, New Jersey, sorry. State of New Jersey, about $25. State of California, maybe 125 because you have more people mm. uh, in this state, right? Uh, and then the lab results came back, and the bill for the labs. The whole thing was $1,100 wow. for a 45-minute visit. Mm. And so that is what the system cannot maintain, you know, at that level. So um, I also um, want to speak to how can we make a difference? So my mobile projects, um, I've tried to ensure that we are in the community in which the individual lives um, to address their health care needs. So we have set up in churches in drug rehabilitation centers, in Salvation Army locations, in school districts. If you have space that you are not using for anything else, can we turn that room into a clinic? And can we see the clients that you serve? 
And so now what we've done is we've cut away the distrust because we're inside of a facility that the community knows, recognizes, believes in, right? And we've cut away the transportation issue, Mm -hmm. right? It's a big part. And because we are grant-funded, it's free. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to worry about, you know, out-of-pocket expenses. And that's the model that needs to be replicated across the country. You're a pioneer. And you're seeing that that's working. How many spots are you or are your mobile? Right now we're in six. Great. We have about 600 patients in our caseload, right? And we're building it as we go. And so just on that, when you build it, how is it a lot of word of mouth? Is it because of this distrust in the community? People, um, family members, friends, are they talking to each other to get the word out as it grows? Mm -hmm. So that's a great question. So we utilize the pastors of the churches, mm, smart. the organizers of whatever facility we're Great. in to put the word out to let them know that we are here. We leaflet the neighborhood with flyers, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Good. I love hearing that. And good luck to you. I'll Thank be keeping you. you in my prayers for that. That's how it works. What steps can be taken to address racism? And I know we've been talking about this, and it's been so interesting because of the history, but what other steps I should ask? Yeah, I think um, we need to sit down at a table and have conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, some of that uh, scientific research, quote unquote, that was conducted in the 30s, 40s, that indicated that African Americans had lower, uh, smaller uh, brain pans. And so, therefore, intellectually inferior. That was published in peer-reviewed journals. Mm. People believed it for a long time, um, and and other kinds of, of you know belief systems like that. Mm-hmm. If we can sit next to one another mm-hmm. and have a conversation, one um, people who um, were part of World War II tell me, you know, so we're going back to the forties now tell me that when they were in a foxhole together and there were minorities and there were non-minorities all fighting an enemy, they trusted each other. Mm -hmm. They had to, right? You couldn't look at a person's skin and and determine that that's not someone you want to work with. And then they would come back to the United States. And, and, you know, the segregation and the the, uh, discrimination would rear its ugly head. Mm. We did it in the war. We did it in the foxholes. Why can't we do it in our communities? It's a great example. A sad example. uh, I think it reflects, again, um, the idea of, I guess, the misconception, the myth of race, um, that we are different based on what we look like. And the science, by the way, proves that wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but the beliefs and who's talking the loudest seems to be what people hear. Mm-hmm. Um, as Dr. McNeil said, we need to have a conversation. And I think it started. Um, but, uh, we have to uh, broaden that conversation, actually start taking measures to make making some changes. Um, again, it goes back to some of the... Uh, <laughs> barriers that we uh, encounter as human beings 
um, where um, because of where we live, because of um, uh, where we go to school, uh, it's kind of interesting that for when you actually look at uh, medicine in general and how it's practiced, um, you have both, well, actually all ethnicities going to the same universities. And I see in some aspects uh, some of the myths, ideas, and ideologies that are racist in nature tend to be incorporated in how many doctors, regardless of the ethnicity, practice it. And we kind of have to take a step back and start looking at what truly are the issues associated with the the, the myth, this ideology, that uh, we're racially different and race makes a difference. when it truly doesn't. Um, Again, science has already shown, (laughs) I mean, if you look at uh, human beings, actually the uh, Human Genome Project showed that um, we're 99.9% the same. Mm-hmm. And whatever that 0.1% is, that difference is, has nothing to do with skin color. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, uh, so um, uh, I think, uh, again, the conversation and truly looking at ourselves in the mirror and seeing that who we are. Now, um, unfortunately, when we look in the mirror, we see who we are. And I think when it comes to racism, uh, one really has to name it, truly name it, and speak to it. Only that's the only way you lay the stuff on the table and 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 try to make amends to try to get mm-hmm. this issue off the table, both from the higher uh, executive level, mm-hmm. all the way down to uh, to the children, because unfortunately. The grandparents teach the children to teach the grandchildren. Right, mm-hmm. it goes through. And it perpetuates. Mm-hmm. So we, we do need to start looking at that. And, and, and uh, also, um, some of the, all, a lot of this begins upstream. We've got to go back and see what, are the, again, it goes back to the, the uh, structures, the structural racism that's in place. And uh, again, name it what it is, mm-hmm. and start making some changes. We, if we want to move forward, uh, we have to start with our kids. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think as you're both talking and hearing the stories and the history, and it is, it's about sitting down and having a conversation. And you know, maybe that racism has been implemented without the next generation even realizing is what you're talking about. It's mm-hmm. it's opening your it's eyes. It's normal. We've normalized. It's been normalized, it. right? Mm-hmm. And as Dr. McNeil, you mentioned how, you know, we're talking about it now. Things are implemented or starting, but it still takes a long time. It's not going to happen tomorrow, or you haven't seen that happen uh, just yet. But Mm -hmm. the conversation is definitely the impetus to making something happen. Mm -hmm. And when when Dr. Parker mentioned uh, you have to name it, Mm -hmm. Um, I remember being seven years old and asking my mother, what are we? Mm. And she said, well, we are Negroes. Um, And so I knew what that word meant, that it was negative, negative connotation. But as I grew up, suddenly I wasn't a Negro anymore. Suddenly I was an African-American. And then, then after maybe 15 more years or so, 
I was black. And then, and now, I'm a person of color. These are socio-political designations that have no basis in scientific fact. And that is what we have to overcome as a country. And to be heard and not being told by the political, by the ideology, whatever whatever that headline is. It's whatever is speaking the loudest. Right, as you mentioned, right. Yeah. Right. Wow. What are some of the statistics associated with racial disparities? Okay. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the stats, I think, are numerous. Some of them are factual. Some of them are... <laughs> Are contrived. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have heard. I, I know. I know. For when I was in college, and my professors were talking about statistics, we know there are statistics and damn statistics. Because mm. uh, I actually had a professor that uh, showed us how you could, uh, uh, how a flea could weigh as much as an elephant. Mm-hmm. So you can manipulate the numbers. Mm-hmm. But when you actually kind of look at stats, I, I, I tend to. Um, ref- I will refer to at least several, at least two studies that uh, speak to uh, the evidence, the scientific evidence of um, when when we look at health disparities, look at how racism has played a role in health disparities. One study was a 2019 science study, it's October 2019 science study that addressed that issue. Another one was uh, even Earlier, uh, 2003, and this was a, um, I'll call it probably groundbreaking or at least really opened up people's eyes as to what, uh, um, how racism played into uh, the inequities in health. And uh, one of the, at least the first author of that study, his name was Brian Smedley. And uh, it's a 2000 study, uh, two th- uh, yeah, 2000 study, and it was called Unequal Treatment. Uh, constructing racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. Uh, if one looks uh, looks though, look up those two articles, or you know, the Smetley book. That's actually almost a book. But if you look at those two studies, it will break down and give you a, a, a huge number of other references that speak specifically to statistics on how and why um, studies historically have shown that um, uh, these disparities or these differences in health outcomes occur. Uh, it has nothing to do with the person's genetics. It has nothing to do with what they look like. It primarily has to do with the environments in which they live. I'm going to tell you, health uh, occurs outside the hospital. Mm-hmm. And where you live, where you're born, live, grow, go to school, all those factors tie into um, uh, your behavior, who you are, your diet, all of that ties into the, your uh, health condition, if you will. So um, when you consider those issues, those doctors that made up the Smedley study, uh, when that study came out, many of the doctors, these were high-class uh, folk, they, a couple of them on the, on the, uh, on the panel did not realize or recognize the disparities based mm-hmm. on uh, this racial issue. And they actually denied it until the results of the study came out. And one of the most, uh, those that were 
denying it, eventually became staunch advocates that we must, we must uh, uh, change the way we uh, do medicine. Or again, we're, we're going to be in a world of hurt yeah. <laughs> if we don't. And that was in 2003. Wow. It seems uh, like just yesterday, so, doesn't it? Right, mm-hmm. after all of that. But, but, there, yeah. but there are indeed a, a lot more discussions that are going on at tables uh, within professional organizations, and partic- specifically in healthcare organizations, to really start looking at what we truly need to do to make things work. And I mentioned it previously that um, the business of medicine, mm-hmm. they call it uh, Healthcare Inc., or <laughs> Medicine Inc., have to kind of get out of the way, mm-hmm. let doctors be doctors and have that uh, doctor-patient relationship to build the trust, and the doctor teams, nurses, and other support, healthcare support staff really work together as, as a unit mm-hmm. to really work on the best, providing the best quality care they can for their patients. So the business of health, what they can do mm-hmm. is provide the resources and the space let them do what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, do you have anything to say about I that? I think he covered it. Yeah. I think he covered it. Um, so while health, oh, mobile health care, I wanted to talk to you about that as one way. What are other ways that we can get better health care outcomes? Mm-hmm. We need to standardize our health care delivery system and our practices across the board. So it should not matter your income level Mm -hmm. or who you are in that with the kind of care that you receive. And we need to start looking at lowering healthcare costs. Why does an MRI in one community Mm -hmm. cost $1,500 and in another community it's 300, Mm -hmm. right? What is causing that difference? And then we need to use more mid-level practitioners that's a term that Congress understands. So we're talking about physician's assistants, mm-hmm. midwives, nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, people like that. They can help. But if you're going to put regulatory barriers on them so that they can't practice, this is a problem. So that needs to be addressed. Uh, and whatever the sociopolitical reasons are for keeping those regulations in place, they need to be lifted. Go ahead. Well said, well stated. Um, there, are, you know, when you actually look at the strategies, they're multi-level. I mean, it's just it's hugely complex and multi-level. Um, I'll, I'll kind of outline a couple, or at least three or four. Oh, the, the healthcare stakeholders, they have to be aware of the healthcare gaps between racial and ethnic minority groups in the United States. The healthcare system itself should base decisions about the resources and allocation of, uh, of, of material, uh, resources, dollars, have to be um, based on, um, I'll call it published, vetted, scientific data, what the data show and guidelines, and try to avoid this disproportionate um, allocation of restricting dollars uh, to minority patients and provide more improved access uh, to, uh, to care. Thirdly, I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you have to improve that doctor-patient relationship. It's 
critically important for trust. And also, for those docs that are actually engaged in that already, reward them. Reward them with the appropriate uh, um, dollars. In fact, when you talk about us moving from a, 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 call a, a, a what's it called? fee fee for, for service, service, a fee for service, uh, many uh, insurance companies and other uh, third-party carriers are actually looking at how can we transition or change or move from a fee-for-service into a value-based healthcare mm. service. Mm. Um, while we're trying to move towards that, you still, <laughs> you still have a huge body of professionals that are been that have been indoctrinated and used to fee-for-service, and again, uh, trying to get as much medical dollars mm. out of the practice, and that's fine. But when the dollar becomes a central uh, focus as opposed to quality patient care, mm -hmm. we have an issue. Mm -hmm. But still, um, try to improve that in such a way to uh, reward doctors that are, that are actually doing these screening, preventative care, uh, and uh, we call it preventative care-based uh, care, so that at least um, uh, we're focused on um, keeping people in the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, improving their quality of care and for that matter educating them so that they so that not only the individual but the family and the community can then really start supporting individuals so they don't have to go back to the hospital in fact this is what value-based care is about uh, i think many of uh, healthcare providers not healthcare providers but many um, third-party carriers insurance companies are looking at this value-based model and uh, are incentivizing docs that if they can keep their pay once they've leave the primary care setting, if they can keep them from coming back to the hospital in 30 days, mm. they can get mm. rewarded for that financially. Wow. And they're looking at that model, how we can kind of incentivize and expand expand that. Mm. Uh, and, and fourthly, um, it's important that uh, uh, doctors and healthcare, health healthcare providers, for that matter, the system itself, have to avoid fragmentation of healthcare plans along socioeconomic lines. It has to be more standardized. It has to look at the healthcare needs of the community, of the individuals within that community, and not look at bottom line dollars. And this also ties into what has been happening historically, mm -hmm. is when doctors and hospitals have used algorithms mm. to assess uh, how to treat a patient once they're in the system, if you will. Many of the algorithms uh, have been based on cost and how efficiently uh, they can bring in more people to get more dollars mm -hmm. as opposed to providing quality care. So uh, the algorithms themselves have created this inequity in the outcomes because if you look at folk, folk that are in, uh, say, underserved environments, they very seldom come to the hospital. This whole concept of uh, not following up and they call them not being compliant. And compliance or not being compliance has been a... Um, it's played a role in these algorithms saying, okay, how can we most effectively and efficiently get save our medical dollars? If these underrepresented folk aren't coming in, then let's load up um, trying to get as many people in who can pay for it as possible. Right. And it goes, to the, again, goes back to the have and the have-nots, those that have the insurance and have the dollars that can pay for certain services versus those who can't. Mm. Uh, so... We, it's a double-edged sword, mm -hmm. but again, conversation, talking about it, and now 
uh, healthcare providers and systems, if you will, in this case, the, the business of health care really have to look at these and address them and make some changes. And I like what you're saying and what you're seeing about the incentivizing for the, those rewards. And, and this all leads me to my next question, which uh, this has had to have made a huge impact, the impact of COVID-19 on our current mental health of healthcare providers and beyond. This is, the world has changed, but what do you see? Yeah, it's, it's horrific. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing high rates of suicide among doctors and nurses. Um, they're just overwhelmed by the system. Loss of employment for logs, large segments of the population. You know, uh, when you lose the primary breadwinner, <laughs> the family is really in uh, tough straits. High retirement rates. People who maybe weren't thinking about retiring, you know, suddenly are going to, like, leave the system. Um, increased suspicion of the treatment modality. You know, this vaccine was experimental for a very long period of time, and people were very mistrustful of that. Um, we've talked about uh, misinformation and disinformation uh, that's out there, and then the higher death rates among minority populations due to COVID, huge. Uh, and then uh, disparate distribution of the COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm available in some communities, but not in others. And, and to piggyback on what Dr. McNeil uh, spoke about, when you talk about the higher rates of uh, death among minority populations, um, when you guys can recall when uh, COVID hit, and in a very short period of time, when we looked at the uh, rate of death within the populations, you saw it a huge impact on the elderly yep. and uh, those with comorbidities. Um, when you put that group as a lump sum, instead of breaking it down to uh, um, uh, ethnic differences, uh, uh, the uh, underserved minority populations got the biggest brunt, hit the biggest brunt of it. Mm. And it, COVID revealed what has historically been in place in this country for a very long time. And it is this realization of the condition under which our healthcare system operates. Mm -hmm. Really have to look at what needs to be done moving forward historically. Um, if I keep saying when we don't, if we don't, we're in a world of hurt. And um, uh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I, I, we could have another whole session. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, with all that being said, um, while COVID has exposed yeah. the chinks in our armor, mm -hmm. in fact, there are a lot of chinks in the armor. And I believe uh, in discussing these things with Dr. McNeil in the past, she's always made a comment that when you actually look at um, the chain we're as strong as the weakest link in our chain. Mm -hmm. And COVID revealed an important weak links in mm -hmm. the chain. So we so got to address that. With that re revelation, again, on the timing, so now it's out there in the open. There's no, that that's not lying to anybody. There's no mis, 
you know, naming what has happened. Where are we at with what happens next? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about that, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think mean, throughout this conversation, yeah, I mean, we've it's been kind trying. of that same. Yeah. So with this reveal, though, specifically with uh, yeah. everything, I mean, yeah. we have, this has been our conversation, sure. but has it accelerated now just because now there's no denying? This is... I, I think uh, um, what uh, the uh, the aftermath of COVID, mm-hmm. uh, when we look at the, our, our healthcare providers, and Dr. McNeil indicated that um, people have uh, dropped out, either suicide, yeah. burnout, and for that matter, a lot of folks not wanting to go into the healthcare system because of seeing the challenges and problems that we actually have. So therefore, the pipeline in which we try to recruit and bring others in uh, becomes depleted. Now, we already had uh, a problem. Obviously, we continually have a problem with the, uh, if you look at the pipeline of people that are retiring mm-hmm. in healthcare and those that are actually coming in replacement, retirement is at a much more higher rate than uh, the influx of folks coming into the system. Um, and even just ex- before, prior to COVID, uh, the baby boomers, for example, uh, this Next, what, five-plus years, if you look at the baby boomers, the largest portion of that bubble is actually coming to retirement right now. Mm. And throw COVID on top of that with yeah. all, the, all the other challenges we had there. That pipeline is, is dwindled. And I am, I mean, for myself personally, what I, I really want to uh, try to focus my efforts at National University on is what can we do? to incentivize students, at least let them see the need first. Um, in, the, uh, in our uh, School of Health and Health, School of, um, health Professions, um, all the programs that we have uh, in, the, in that school, we're trying really working hard to really get students incentivized to say that, look guys, you know, we see these problems, we can see them nationally, um, locally, but look in your community. What can you do mm-hmm. in your community to start? And it starts there. And you know, you've heard that expression, think globally, but act locally. Right. Um, it's where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. And when I'm talking to my students, other than going through the lectures or whatever, I'm always trying to integrate. We are both um, a direct reflection of looking, starting from your community and, yeah. and look at where you started and look at where you are now. And that is such a key. You're right. Mm-hmm. Think globally, but act locally. So when I um, spoke about the 80,000 students that we turn away, Mm -hmm. we need to have a better way of educating students using the technology available to us. So we are beginning now to use virtual reality, augmented reality, those kinds of technologies into the classroom where the students can immerse themselves in this environment, be well-trained, and able to hit the ground running when they graduate. And I borrow that scenario from the aviation industry. Mm -hmm. So a pilot has to sit in a a simulated cockpit for thousands of hours before he or she is even let to uh, be in a real plane. And you you can't expect that the experience of a vertical nose dive is gonna happen often enough that you're gonna know what to do about it. Right? Mm-hmm. It's too expensive a risk to take. So um, nursing is moving forward with VR technology. We're putting our students into 
immersive situations. We're having the patient deteriorate before your eyes. We're having the student have to think quickly on his or her feet to turn that situation around, and we can practice again and again and again. You can't do that in the real world. You can't do that. You don't get that second chance, right? I can have a whole show on just this because this is something new, as you're talking about with this immersive um, virtual reality. And I think it's fascinating. And I love your, uh, you know, talking about the pilots doing a nosedive. I mean, it's true. If you think about it, it's about scenarios that we're not. I I lost both of my parents um, to cancer and to Alzheimer's. But it's, you know, we don't, we learn the, um, the facts of life, but we don't always learn the facts of death. And that's mm. just a reality, right? So just to go along with what, there's realities every day and scenarios that we just don't talk about in anything and everything, but especially as we're talking today about racism in healthcare. But uh, with that VR, I think it's fascinating that we're here now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really admire this lady here. Oh, I do too. <laughs> I admire both of you. And, and she's very soft-spoken and um, she's a powerhouse. Yeah. Um, I think she mentioned earlier when in her introduction that she uh, has been involved in directing at least two programs, that's your nurse manage, National University Nurse Management Program, and one that we're currently uh, engaged in where she got a HRSA grant for over a million bucks, I believe, mm-hmm. um, that involves um, simulated virtual reality. Mm-hmm. And we have this workshop that these students can go into uh, for, as an eight-week program uh, that they're learning, uh, again, uh, this engagement, this uh, hands-on virtual reality, and uh, tr- really speaking to where the rubber meets the road in some of these healthcare issues, particularly in underserved community, mm-hmm. what can we do mm-hmm. to improve that? We're actually teaching students how to de- how to develop uh, uh, research grant proposals. Great. That are that are. Uh, um, I'm talking about those that can hit the ground running, and yeah. we've had several students that have put together proposals that a couple of them have actually submitted. Mm. for funding. And that's uh, a part, that's the business side of it, but that's something that probably hasn't happened. It's, what it's, a, a, it's a skill set it that is. you rarely get in an academic institution. Mm, I and, love hearing that. And Dr. McNeil and her vision and and what she... And, really <laughs> um, uh, has put together an incredible program. And, and, and again, looking at where, where the future is, mm-hmm. Using virtual reality as a means to teach students right. that you can make a mistake over and over and over again until you get it right. Yep. So that when you're in a real world situation, you right. know you know automatically what to do. Right. It's critically important in the healthcare environment. It's saving lives. Yeah. yeah. And and again, it, we don't. It's interesting to me that it's taken this point. I literally could talk to you about this all the time mm-hmm. because it is. It's a shocking when you're first with your a new nurse or a new doctor and you come upon something you've never heard about or talked about, and it is shocking. And and it's that split second. It that's what it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I so kudos to you. you. I'm among greatness here I'm on both <laughs> your behalves. Um, what percent of U.S. citizens continue to be uninsured? I know we've been talking about this, but is there a percentage, a number on this? Yeah, well, it keeps going up and down, mm-hmm. but it's about 10% now. It was uh, 40% just before the Affordable Care Act was passed. So that did cover some people, but remember that the states had to buy in 
to the Affordable Care Act, mm. and 26 states did not. And so in those states, those individuals did not have the uh, luxury of being able to be insured. Um, so we have to rethink how we're going to utilize state mandates and how we're going to cover mm. care expenses. And if you look at that, look at that you know, in the advent and, uh, and aftermath of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, because these states didn't buy into uh, ex- expanded Medicare um, or in already uh, deprived environments or communities, uh, it impacted uh, them more significantly uh, with regards to the, uh, the, um, uh, the COVID incident. Mm-hmm. But that matter, the deaths associated with COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, um, it's a double-edged sword, and I think we really ought to lay all this on the table, name it for what it is, and make some real inroads to, to change this. This conversation today, we need to get this global. <laughs> Everybody mm-hmm. needs to sit down and, you know, uh, listen to what you're having to say. Because, again, uh, eyes have been opened, and especially right after COVID. Um, what are the social determinants of health? Okay. That's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> well, when you look at a person's health, um, it's influenced by a range of factors called the social determinants of health. It includes who they are. That means their gender, their age, uh, what they do, their lifestyle, habits, that be their smoking, alcohol, and their diet. Now, you also have to look at the conditions in which people are born, where they grow up, where they live, and where they age. Mm. Uh, this also includes uh, people's social and community networks and the socioeconomic, cultural, and environmental conditions, and also the healthcare system in which these people live. Now, these factors are highly variable and collectively are called social determinants of health. Now, social determinants of health are ultimately shaped by money, power, and resources, and also whether they're available locally, nationally, or internationally. Mm-hmm. Now, again, social determinants of health are very, are very variable and complex because they all interact, and now that interaction has to deal with both the conditions and the structured systems in which they interact, and that also determines or has determined what we call health inequities. Now, health inequities, uh, by functioning definition, is an unfair and avoidable health differences between groups of people. That's broadly. However, and if you actually look at the national dialogue of uh, when we talk about health inequities, Interestingly enough, nowhere in that national conversation, uh, when we're talking about social determinants of health, do you hear any discussion about the five-ton gorilla that's in the room? And that's the role of racism in this country on health and health outcomes. Uh, The World Health Organization has framed, probably provided two broad frames of determinants, and I mentioned them earlier. One was socioeconomic and political the other as pertains to the actual social determinants of health. Uh, the, the socioeconomic, political, identified three areas. Uh, um, I said governance, uh, policies, 
and uh, values, what we value. And defining those uh, can translate into the community in which we live because policies, laws and policies and practices have kind of established these structures, if you will, and, and living environments in which we live. Uh, that, one, that includes people living close to uh, ind- industries where there's uh, polluting of the air, polluting of the water, polluting of the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find that those that are underrepresented, minority generally, are in those types, are close to those types of environments versus the other side where the wealthy, they, they have the money and wherewithal political clout, power uh, to, to avoid those areas. Uh, the other component that the World Health Organization uh, speaks to is actual social determinants of health, and those are the ones I've indicated about where a person is born, grow, grow up, live, and where they age. And all of those, again, are highly complex, say, interactive, and the outcome of that um, uh, is what we have to deal with, and that's where the inequities come into play. And, and I would add um, education access. Mm-hmm. Under no circumstances should children be graduating from our high schools unable to read or write. Mm-hmm. And and if we continue down that path, we will lose our status as a world-class nation. Mm. Amazing. I, I could talk to you both all day, and I really appreciate the time that we've had today to have this conversation. Absolutely, go ahead. I can make one statement just to add. To, to that and probably tied up in a nutshell. Um, these challenges that we spoke to and are speaking to, as I indicate, I actually mentioned it prior, uh, that we have to look upstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at all those factors, those structures that are already in place, causing the challenges that we see right mm-hmm. now. And it will continue to cause the challenges in the future. Looking upstream, start actually making certain policy changes. And our leaders will really have to be put to task for that. And here is where uh, those of us that were the rubber meets the road, the Joe Blow citizen, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we engage ourselves and just, you don't necessarily have to get totally immersed, but if you like that, get totally immersed in your local uh, in local activities, what's going on, the PTA, mm-hmm. um, community, uh, be, start to become a community activist. And most importantly, this is for everyone, I don't care what your political persuasion is, vote. Right. Ooh. Participate in the process. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's where we have to make uh, the greatest impact and make our voices known mm-hmm. and name things what they are. Move them forward. Mm. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you both for your time and for what you've accomplished and where you are now and where you're going in the future. I'm just it's such an inspiration. Uh, if you want more information, you can visit National University's website, nu.edu, and you can find Dr. Gloria McNeil and Dr. Ricardo Parker there today. Thank you again for your time, and we look forward to your next visit. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the National University Podcast. For updates on future or past guests, visit us at nu.edu. You can also follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.